Good to see you, Shore Church. Good morning. That's the warmest welcome I've ever had. Um, thank you. Thanks so much. Uh, friends, guests, those in from out of town, I'm really glad that you're here with us this morning. Um, Shore Church is always great to see your faces. Um, we're carrying on this morning, working through the book of Colossians. Um, if you've been with us, we've been studying through Colossians. This is a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Colossae to co- uh, kind of confront, but also encourage them in the face of sort of the slow drip of cultural ideologies and different worldviews and belief systems that had been creeping in. So for those who haven't been here, chapter one was this big buildup, Paul's big warm welcome, uh, but a big buildup to chapter two, where he kind of gave the cold, hard, unadulterated presentation of the gospel. Um, Pastor James preached this back at the beginning of May. Um, Go and read that again, chapters 2, verses 8 on. Go and listen to James's sermon again. It was really good. Um, But for the last month since then, what we've been doing is we've been unpacking how Paul presents this gospel should look like in our lives. So chapter 3 is really just one giant unpacking of what the gospel, what salvation life, what discipleship to Jesus looks like played out in the life of a believer. So last week, James talked about this um, specifically in relation to the marital, marital con, uh, conflict, that's the wrong word, um, marital relationship. Um, this morning, we're going to pick it back up. So grab your Bibles, read with me. Um, we're in chapter three. My text this morning is um, from verse 20 on. But I, because this is one big idea that Paul's presenting, I just want us to read it because I think it's helpful to, to, to see it all together. So one thing we're going to do here is we're going to stand for the reading of God's word. That's something we do every Sunday. So I invite you, grab your Bible, stand with me. Colossians 3, verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and don't be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there's no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Well, go ahead and have a seat. I want to, um, I want to begin by acknowledging that as you hear this text this morning, uh, that for many, this is probably a hard section of scripture, maybe one that you've had a problem wrestling through before. Maybe, maybe it seems a little antiquated to your ear, like this is something for the first century, but maybe not for today. Might seem you know, a little old-fashioned. Maybe you're thrown off by some of the talk about slavery. Maybe, maybe for you, somebody's weaponized this verse against you. When you hear some of these verses, it stirs up. It causes an emotion in you. Maybe bitterness is right beneath the surface. Maybe there's some pain there. Maybe, maybe you're hearing this for the very first time, though, and you're thinking, man, Paul writes some wacky letters. What is this all about? Um, 
As we examine this text this morning, we're going to see that this section, chapter 3, verse 18 to 4, 1, it's in fact, as I said at the beginning, an explanation of what the outworking of the gospel should look like in every single believer's life. So at first glance, it might look like it's clustered into um, husband, wife, children, parents, slaves, Masters. What I began to see as I studied this this week is that there's some themes behind all of these relationships that Paul's presenting, and it's these themes that I want to take a look at this morning. They're up on the screen. Um, three ways I think Paul's showing all believers to live their salvation life and their discipleship to Jesus out, and that's in submission and obedience, with reverence and respect, and thirdly, with excellence and sincerity. Note takers, this is for you. This is um, kind of the format I'm going to follow as we go through. My aim is to show us that while addressed to specific relational um, roles and functions, this, the truths in it apply to every single believer, anyone who would call themselves a follower of Christ. All are called to live lives out in these three ways. With that, let me open us in prayer and then we'll get going. Father, I thank you for your word. Just well aware that there's people coming in who have been hurt by these verses. Maybe you're confused by them. And all of us just need to hear from you this morning, Holy Spirit. Father, would you ignite the words here? Would you encourage us? Would you excite a vision of yourself through them? Would we be built up and encouraged? And your word says that we don't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. And we, so we know that this word here is meant to, to, to nourish us, to build us up, to strengthen us, to give us the fuel that we need to get through the week that's ahead in our lives that we're living right now. And so Holy Spirit, I'm desperate. I'm desperate for you. And I know as a people, we're desperate for you. Would you come and would you ignite these scriptures we plead? We pray that in the name of Jesus, amen. Now, this, this first point, submission and obedience, I want to just open by saying, if you're like me, this probably sounds weird to your ear. So it probably sounds a little weird to your ear if you're a UFC fan um, into mixed martial arts. Um, the first thing that comes to my mind when I hear submission, Ronda Rousey. Ronda Rousey and her awesome arm bar, submitting everyone. Remember back in the day, maybe 2012 on, she's taking everyone down. If you remember, I can't remember which UFC it was, but she goes into the ring with Misha Tate and she puts her down in four minutes by submission to armbar. This is, when I hear submission, this is what I think of. I think of being dominated. Submission, in my mind, is on par with being broken, like a horse whose will has finally been dominated and now he's forced to kind of just do whatever this person on his back is commanding him to say. But this, this is not the biblical way we should be thinking of submission. The word translated submit in chapter 3, it's actually a Greek verb, um, which communicates the idea of willingly putting oneself under the authority of another. So submission in the Bible, it means willingly putting yourself under someone else. And, and what I find amazing is that this is actually the same verb used in Luke 2 to describe Jesus. So you remember Luke 2, Jesus and his family, they go up to Jerusalem for the Passover. They're up there, and then everyone turns around and heads back home to Nazareth. A day later, full, like 24 hours pass, and they realize, oh, hey, where's Jesus? 
they've lost them. So they spend three days, the, the, the text says, searching for him, and they eventually find him in the temple. He's there, and he says, and he says, well, of course you knew I'd be in my temple. I'm about my father's business. You knew I, I would be in my father's house. But it's what proceeds from there that really shocks me. It says something remarkable. It says, after this, then Jesus went back down to Nazareth, Nazareth with them, and he was obedient to them. This word obedience used for Jesus is the same word used in Colossians 3 referring to submission and obedience. And I, I find that shocking. This is a little actually unbelievable because the God of the universe, he wasn't, he wasn't unwittingly forced. He wasn't armbarred. He wasn't domineered into going back with them. He willingly submitted himself to Joseph and Mary. John, John 1 3 says, All things were made through Jesus, and was not, and nothing that was made wasn't made through him. So here we see Jesus submitting himself to the couple that's descended from the people that he made. That's what the text is telling us. Jesus is willingly submitting himself to something that he made. This, this blows my mind a little bit. I pondered this this week, and it should force us to ask the question, why would he do this? Why would he submit himself this way? Well, he didn't do it because he was overpowered. He wasn't outnumbered. At any moment, he could have just pulled back the fleshly veil. His glory, his divinity would have shone out, and every knee in heaven and earth would have gladly knelt down and declared, you're God of all. He didn't do it because he was weak. He did it because he understood that this was the Father's plan. There was intention, there was purpose behind it. In one sense of the word, in submitting to Joseph and Mary, he wasn't so much submitting to them as he was his heavenly Father, or to put it differently, in submitting to Joseph and Mary, he was submitting to his heavenly Father. Ephesians 5, verse 21, another letter Paul wrote, and this theme um, comes up a lot in, in Paul's letters. He says this, he calls all believers to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another, why? Out of reverence for Christ. Notice, the motivator for our submission, the, the motivator for our obedience is our adoration of Christ. Same thing that motivated Christ. Philippians 2, um, verse 5 and 10, I'll, I'll quote from it, but kind of jump around a bit if you have it memorized. I'm, I'm kind of jumping from verse to verse. It says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset that was in Christ Jesus. Then it goes on to say, he made himself nothing by taking the very form of a servant. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him. To the highest place, gave him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth. In case I'm making, we can't think of submission as an act of weakness. We need to understand it as an act of strength, as an act of our will, as an act of trust. And if Jesus submitted, then you and I can too. 1 Peter 5, 6, this is up on your screens. It says, therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. 
There's a relationship between, you can just leave that verse up for a second. There's a relationship between 1 Peter 5 and Philippians 2, 5. Christ humbled and was exalted, and, and here 1 Peter saying that when we humble ourselves, we also will be exalted. Refusing to humble ourselves is saying, I want to be exalted now. To willingly humble ourselves is to say, I'm going to hold out for then. We're to be people who are willingly submitting ourselves to the authorities that God's put over and around us because Jesus did this as well. So wives, husbands, children, slaves, masters, they all do this for the exact same reason because Jesus did it as well. Read with me verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives. Don't be harsh with them. Children, Obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, don't provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bond servants and everything, obey those who are your earthly masters. Goes on to say, fearing the Lord, knowing, verse 24, that from the Lord you will receive your inheritance. It's this motivator behind all of them. So how we live this out is it is going to look a lot different depending on our context, depending on whether um, you're a husband or you're a wife. We're all children, but whether you're, um, there's probably no slaves in the room, but if you are, welcome. We're glad you're here. We'll help. Come get me after. Um, but we're all to be living our lives out in submission to Christ and, and to those who he's commanded that we be obedient to. We're all living out ordered subordination under Christ. So children submitting to their parents, wives submitting to their husbands, slaves submitting to their masters, whatever it is, you submitting to your boss, it's all ultimately an act of submission to God. But get this, it's, you might look at this and go, wow, men get off really easy, right? Husbands, where are husbands submitting? They're, they have to do what God commanded them to here. The, the command to love your wife, the command to parent your children, to take the time to, to read books, to figure out how to do this well, do it with excellence, not provoke our children, raise them in the fear of the Lord. There's a long list of commands that I could go through. And men, I would commend putting, putting time into reading actual books, finding all of the scriptures pertaining to raising your children because God's commanded us to do it well. And if we're not, it's actually an act of disobedience to God. We're commanded to be parenting our children. So, so women, any, children, husbands are under authority, and they're commanded to obedience as well. Now, I can hear feedback in the room, though, because I have it going on in my head as well. You don't know my spouse. But you don't know what my husband's like. You don't know what my parents are like. And you, my boss, if you knew him, you wouldn't think I had to submit there. I have these same thoughts in my head. If you're like me, um, we all have this tendency to think that we're, we're this one unique case where this doesn't apply. We're the, we're the exception of, to the rule. Like if God actually looked down and saw, we knew he'd be like, ah, oh, come on, you get at the jail, get out of jail, free card there. But... But I want to challenge us. Just consider the conditions into which Jesus lived this out. His parents, both sinners. 
both sinners, they lost the guy. They probably took up tone with him. They were probably a little harsh with him. Maybe sometimes they even disciplined him incorrectly. But he submitted to them. He was mocked and ridiculed by authorities. Authorities that he actually put in place. Yet it says that when he was reviled, he reviled not in return. He was beaten, he was whipped, he was forced to carry his own cross up a hill. At any moment, he could have just opened up a can of let me show you who in fact is boss, but he didn't. It says to his disciples in the garden when they, when they try to stop the authorities who came to, to arrest him and ultimately take him away to be killed, he says, don't you think that at any moment I could call my father and he would send legions of angels to come and defend me? Yet he willingly went with the authorities who came to kill him. Well, they mocked his weakness and taunted him and spat on him, saying, if you're the son of God, come down from the cross. He didn't open his mouth. He willingly let himself be crucified to, by terrible, by wicked authorities. He didn't attempt to step out from under them. He stayed right under why? Why? Because, because he was seeking the plan that God was going to accomplish through it. He was setting his mind on the things above. He was putting off his flesh, not looking for a reward there, and he was putting on the heavenly things, the same thing Paul called us to at the beginning of chapter 3, you'll remember, to seek, to set, to put off, and then to put on. He knew that it was through submitting to the Father's will that God's plan for him and, and in turn us and all of humanity through submitting to that plan that God's plan would unfold. Philippians, again, I love that book, Philippians 1, 18 to 20, it says, I will rejoice for I know that with full courage now as always Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or death. And he says, for me to die or to live is Christ, to die is gain. Up on your screens, Matthew 5, 39. It says, don't resist the one who's evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Romans 13, verse 1. It says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So why, why did Jesus submit to the authorities around him? Because he trusted the Father. Why would Paul read Acts? Why did Paul submit to authorities? Why did Paul willingly march into places where he knew he was going to be persecuted? because he trusted the plan of God. And he, he believed that in walking out obedience to his will would be the greatest joy for him. Why have millions of people refused to renounce Christ, willingly stuck it out in terrible situations, despite the fact that many of them went on to be killed and murdered because they wouldn't refuse Christ? Because they trusted the will of God that the reward in heaven was more than anything we could possibly cash out with here on earth. Why would a wife submit to her husband when it's hard? Why would a husband 
love his wife as he's been commanded, even when it's not what he feels like doing, maybe when they've been unfaithful. Why would a child submit to their parents, maybe when they're difficult and maybe they're not even believers? Why would you submit to a boss who you think maybe isn't as kind as he could or isn't as fair as he could potentially be? for these exact same reasons, because we have placed our trust wholeheartedly in the sovereignty of God over all things, because we believe that even in terrible situations, even if it brings tragedy on us, that we will, with our actions, tell the world of our hope and trust in God's goodness, that there's more joy to be had in submitting to the will of God than outside of it. So let me just ask a short church where, where do we wrestle submission? Where do we wrestle with the idea of obedience? Where are we pushing back? What, what authorities have we just made up our mind, we're not going to obey you? Where, where in our hearts are we prone to rebellion? Um, First Samuel... This verse came to mind this week. It's kind of an obscure one. Um, 1 Samuel 15, verse 22 to 23. Um, says this, it says, Behold, obedience is better than sacrifice. Obedience is better than sacrifice. Um, Keith Green sang a really beautiful song about this. But then what this verse goes on to say really sticks out to me. It says, Rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. Um, your, your translation, it might say rebellion is, is as the sin of divination. This verse likens rebellion to witchcraft and divining of spirits. And here's the reason why. It's because when we, when we make up our minds, I'm not going to follow you. Listen, I don't need to submit to your will. I can make things happen on my own. I don't need to submit and trust that you're in control. I can do whatever I want right now, and I can make the situation better for myself, God. What we're doing is the same thing as someone who practices witchcraft or divination. We're saying, I can mix up a spell and I can change my, my surroundings. When we're not looking to God and trusting his will, we're saying, listen, it's the same as divining because we're going, I could conjure up a spirit that will tell me what's, what to do next. It's a lack of trust. That's what the verse is telling us. When we rebel against the authorities around us, we're in fact rebelling against God. We're doubting his goodness. We're doubting his sovereignty. But now, I, hear me please. I am not saying that we need to follow our spouses, our parents, our bosses, or our government into sin or into disobedience to the commands of God. I am not saying that, but that is not most of our problems. Most of us are checking out way, 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 way before that point. So I don't want to spend a whole lot of time there, but I need to add that disclaimer. But what I want us to see is two things. One, the wickedness of our rebellion and our resistance to the will of God. Secondly, the trustworthiness of our God. He's trustworthy. 
I think of the story of Joseph. You remember Joseph got sold into slavery by his brothers, thrown into a pit, then tossed into a slave, slave caravan where he would have probably walked barefoot across a desert, eventually ends up um, being sold into someone's house, falsely accused. Then he gets thrown into another prison where he's seemingly left forgotten. And then he becomes, eventually God kind of works the situation. Yet, yet when he says to his brothers that it wasn't in fact him who sent him on his journey, but God. God sent him there. Um, Genesis 45, I'm, um, 45, 8, he says, it's not you who sent me here, but God. Genesis 50, he says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. God's trustworthy in the midst of that. The story is encouraging to me because it tells us that God's at work and he can still be glorified despite the fact that our situations might look really terrible. God's not looking down and going like, oh shucks, that my plan got thwarted, now Joseph's in jail. Scripture's clear, God uses and even ordains situations that we're in. God uses and even ordains situations that we're in. Um, you may be familiar with the worship song Sovereign Over Us. Sovereign Over Us. Um, Michael W. Smith wrote that years ago. It's a beautiful song. It talks about how God walks with us in the midst of these trials and these dark seasons. It's a, it's a really great song. I love the song, but I hate the bridge. I can't stand the bridge. And <laughs> the reason why is because it says, even what the enemy meant for evil, you turn it for our good. You turn it for our good. And I think this is how a lot of us can think of our situations is like, ah, oh, Satan's at work. God, come and turn it. When are you going to turn this for good? When are you going to finally show up and start working in the midst of my situation? But this isn't what Joseph said. That's what Michael W. Smith is quoting Joseph. He doesn't say, you turned it for my good. It says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. God meant it. God allowed it. God ordained it. So, Michael W., if you're listening, um, I just encourage you, change that line to you meant it for our good. We need to understand this because there's a big difference. One has a weak God. One has a supremely powerful Good God who's in perfect control over whatever situation you might be working through, walking through, pardon me. God's trustworthy in whatever you're going through. So if you're here, you're not yet a believer. If you're just sort of skirting the edges, you're on the beginnings of a faith journey, can I just point out that nothing else offers you hope like this? Nowhere else do you find hope like this. Apart from a God of the universe, you're just in the middle of a really crappy time. You have no hope it's going to get better. And the end is that you just cease to exist or you go into oblivion forever. What the gospel, what the Bible's telling us is that God allows some things and even uses them to work together things for the believer. There's way more hope here than anywhere else. Now, this might sound offensive to your ear. God's at work in things, but it's actually the best news in the world. God's arms are a lot longer than we could ever imagine. He's a lot more sovereign than we could ever comprehend, and he's working together things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. And so, church, let me ask us, 
What if the situation that you're resisting submission in has actually been ordained by God? What if the situation where you're wrestling obedience is actually something that God's allowed for your good? What if God has purposefully designed it for good and you just can't see it right now? Obedience, it's right even when we don't understand it. I've spent much of my life um, just living out rebellion, rage against the machine, blaring in my headphones, sticking it to every authority over me, just resisting, fighting, tooth and nail the whole way. And, and through it all, my, my motivation was I really did believe that there, I was going to have more joy as soon as I got out from this oppression. Once I'm out from under that, I'm going to be A-okay. There's joy here. But what I've come to see is that I've actually robbed myself of um, unbelievable amounts of joy. Over and over, as I've become a student of the scriptures, it's clear that obedience and submission are the root and the pathway to joy. God has plans and purposes for our lives, but we'll miss out on them if we think the journey doesn't involve obedience and submission. We need to stop wasting our effort fighting against authority because we'll end up missing out on joy. Joy is attached to biblical submission and obedience. And there's more joy to be had there than anywhere else. Remember Jesus, he said it was for the joy set before him he endured the cross. The beginning of this chapter, Paul started off by saying that we're to seek the things above. And if we want to get to the things above, the joy that was set before Jesus, the joy that's set before us, we're going to have to follow the map that God laid out for us. We're going to have to put down our own maps to joy, and we're going to have to pick up his the second way, though, in this text that I see Paul calling us, so he calls us to obedience and submission, and it's in, in that that we have hope, and it's in that that we have joy. The second thing I see Paul calling us to, the way that our salvation life and discipleship to Jesus should play out is with reverence and respect. And I want you to see where I'm getting this from in the text, so grab your Bibles. Verse 22, it's speaking to bond servants, which we're going to unpack in just a few minutes, so stay with me. Um, it says, bond servants. Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. Now, depending on which translation you're reading, verse 22 there, it might, uh, it might say slaves or it might say bond servants. Um, I like that the fact that ESV translates this as bond servants because um, the word here in Greek is doulos. Doulos, um, it's not so much communicating slave in the way that we think of it, like somebody stolen from their land, forced against their will, brought here. It's communicating this idea of willing slavery. Willing slavery. So if somebody got into debt, got into financial troubles, they could sell themselves in the service of others. Um, they could become their, like, a household servant and pay off their debts. It's actually, in other literature, um, this word doulos often gets used for, um, like, uh, an employee, first century employees. It wasn't 
a big employment thing where you went to work for someone else then. You pretty much worked the family business. But douloses could sell themselves in the employ of another. So in this culture, um, this isn't speaking of slaves. It's speaking of willing servants. And, and I think, though, that it also speaks to all of us today who are Christ's. Because all of us on a deeper level, we'll, we're all spiritual bondservants. For Christ, we're his bondservants. We've, to be a disciple or a follower of Jesus means to sell ourselves into his service. And, and this, I mean, is backed up all throughout the scripture. Paul, at the opening of many of his letters, he refers to himself as a bondservant. James, the half-brother of Jesus, he calls himself the bondservant or the doulos of Christ. Second Peter, the apostle Peter, he calls himself a doulos. Jude, the other half-brother of Jesus, he calls himself a bondservant to Christ. So rightfully understood, I would say all of us are bondservants of Christ. And I believe that Paul has this in mind when he's writing verse 22. I don't think that this command is just to household slaves. I think it's to all of us. So just read it again with me. He says, bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not, and this is what I want us to catch, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. So notice Paul saying two things, that our attitudes towards authorities matter. Our attitudes need to be the same as that, as if we were serving God himself. Because, I mean, we read all throughout the scripture, but I'll quote Daniel 4.17 specifically. It says, the most high rules the kingdom of men, and he gives it, meaning dominion and authority, and he gives it to whomever he will. Our attitudes towards the authorities over us need to be the same as to God. And second thing Paul's pointing out is that our attitude needs to be sincere not a begrudging service, just an act that we put on all the while inwardly hating the person. He commands sincerity of heart. There's a few examples of this in scripture that I just love. I mean, if you read the story of Joseph, we already talked about him. Look at how he served. Look at how he served. David, even after he's even after David's anointed king and he's serving under Saul, who's just wicked. Look at his attitude towards Saul the whole way through. Esther. If you've read Esther, um, she was taken captive, brought to a foreign land, forced into the king's harem. Yet she serves wholeheartedly and God used her position to help the nation of Israel. Daniel. Daniel gets taken and made a eunuch. He's made, his anatomy is removed. And he serves wholeheartedly as unto God, and God shows him favor. There's, there's many examples. Just As you read through the scripture, look at the hearts that are preserved in the scripture for us. Look at their attitudes. The way we... We need to, we need to take note and, and just go, how are we responding to the earthly authorities God's put over us? How do we speak? How do we act? How do we serve the ones that are over us? Do we believe God's placed them there? How do we respond to our parents, to our spouses, to our wives, to our husbands, to our employers? Paul's challenging us here, and it's challenging. 
He's speaking of Christian households, but it applies to all of us. The house of God needs to look radically different than anywhere else. It needs to be more informed by the scripture than the slow drip of culture. We're to live our lives out in submission and obedience to Christ, in reverence and respect to the authorities that are around us. And then our third point is with excellent—pardon me excellency and sincerity in all that we do. It says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So I'm not preaching right now for the approval of James or for the approval of you or the approval of Norm or the approval of C2C Network, whom I'm under. You're not cutting grass or washing dishes or doing whatever you do for the approval of your boss alone or for the hope of a raise. You're not parenting just for the peace of your household and the praise of your spouse, the good of your children, hopefully. Jill was not playing up here and does not practice to perform with excellency just to please us. We're all working for God. Everything we do is to be done as unto the Lord. We're servants in the household of a king. We need to be seeking his glory first and foremost. And if you, if you would, in your Bibles, take a flip to the right. 1 Peter 2, 9. Oh, great. It's up on the screen. Sorry. You can put your Bibles down. Or keep your Bibles out, but you can look on the screen if you want. It says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Take a look at this. Here's what it says. You are priests. You are priests so that you can proclaim his excellency. So what is it you do, sir? You're a phantom courier priest. You're a phantom courier priest for the purpose of proclaiming the excellencies of God. (laughs) It's good. Whatever it is you do, you're a dishwashing priest. You're a a grass-cutting priest. You are a a law-defending priest. Everything we do is as a royal priest with the purpose of proclaiming Christ. And we do this when when we live our lives out in submission and obedience with reverence and respect and with excellency in all that we do. Just an illustration for us. I used to have this Volkswagen car back when I first started dating Rebecca. It was amazing. I loved this car. Series 3 Passat Synchro, one of 400, so you don't know what I'm talking about. It's an amazing car. It was so fast. Um, I can't tell you how fast I got, well, yeah, I can't tell you how fast I got going in this car. I loved the car immensely. Um, But it had a tape deck in it. And um, so the only tape I had, tapes were obsolete at this point. Um, The only tape I had was the Beatles' White Album. And we just play it over and over and over. But one weekend, while visiting my German mechanic, which is what you do on weekends when you own Volkswagens, you hang out (laughs) at dealerships. Um, There was a car in the lot, and I I was looking for a part, and so I was out there, and um, in the tape deck was this cassette. And I awesome, one other cassette for the car. And it was the Mamas and the Papas. If you know the Mamas, I didn't like it at first. I actually really like the Mamas and Papas now, but it's this 60s, 
pop folk quartet. And what they were famous for was their four-part harmonies. They would, they would harmonize, and it's really beautiful. They're really talented. But what they were famous for is, is each person sang their part perfectly. A fifth voice emerged. And so um, if you can actually go search fifth voice, mamas and papas. They became known for this fifth voice that would appear in the mix. But all it was was their voices aligning perfectly, and this whole other presence came out of it. The reason I bring this up is that because as we live our lives in submission and obedience, with reverence, with respect, and with excellency, when the body of Christ does this, when our households do this, when we do this in our workplace, another voice appears. Another presence begins to come out of all that we do, and it testifies of the goodness and the sufficiency and the joy of the Lord. It testifies about who he was. Now, I, I suspect many here, you want to serve the Lord wholeheartedly, but you've been desperately waiting for that moment where he finally releases you to that good works that Ephesians says that he prepared before the foundations of the world for you to walk in. I want to challenge us. What if, what if that good work that God prepared for us what if that thing your whole life is about is walking out submission and obedience done with reverence and respect and excellency precisely where you are today? What if we've been missing it? What if we've bought into the lie that there's more joy to be had now than then so much that we've missed what God designed us for? First Corinthians 6, 19 to 20, it says, you are not your own. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your bodies. And that begins today. So if you're, if you're here and you're not yet a believer, I just want to let you know you too can have this hope. You too can have hope that there's something bigger than just your situation going on. You can have that this morning by surrendering your own rebellion against God and his will and coming and pleading with the Lord Christ to forgive your sins. The scriptures say everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And that if you profess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And that offer is extended to all here this morning. Everyone's walking out a wrestle. Just do you have a hope in the midst of it? Believers in the room, followers of Christ, apprentices of Jesus, I want to ask us, what does it look like for you to leave here and trust Christ more in your present situation? What does it look like for you to leave here today and trust Christ and honor Christ and submit and practice obedience and fear and reverence and respect and excellency in the situation that you're in right now? I invite you to think on that. We're going to respond in a few ways, first of which is a couple couples are going to come up. They're going to have um, wine or juice, according to your conscience, and some bread. Um, 
This symbolizes, represents, and is a picture to us of what Christ did for us. He came, he died on our behalf, and so as believers, we come forward, dip the bread in the wine or juice according to your conscience, and we praise Christ because he's taken away our sins. We don't have to live under them anymore, and he's given us this new hope. We do this weekly because it's a powerful reminder in our heads. Secondly, if you want somebody to pray with you, I'm in the back or there'll be a couple in the corner. We'd love to pray with you through whatever it is you're going through. And then we're gonna join corporately in worship, praising Jesus because he has given us a hope in the midst of this. And then on the back end, someone will be up to talk about how you can respond um, with your time and your talent and your treasure as well. Let me close this in prayer. Jesus, I thank you that we're not alone in our messes. We're not alone in our struggles and that you're a God who's over them and has in fact allowed them for a purpose and that frees us to hope today. I pray our hearts as we reaffix them, our gaze back on this, uh, this joyful eternity set before us, this, this positive assurance that you're at work and you haven't forgotten us. As we remind ourselves as that, we fill our vision with that. Would you encourage the believers in the room Would you draw those who have not yet entered into relationship and are living out this hopeless wrestle, free them to the enjoyment and the peace that this verse screams of. So whether we're children or spouses or husbands or wives or working for someone or um, an employer of someone, would everything we do honor you? Would the harmony that rings out from all of our lives be Christ is enough, We pray this and we plead this as your people in the name of Jesus, by the power of the Spirit, amen.